Okay, well, it is, uh, it is quarter past five, and I realize I'm the only thing standing between you and the free drinks reception at six o'clock, so uh, I think we should make a start. Uh, my name's Jonathan Mickey, for those who I haven't met before, and I'm the director of this department for continuing education, also president of one of the university's colleges, Kellogg College, I might, I might mention uh, in a minute. So firstly, I'd like to welcome everybody here, whether you're one of our existing students or uh, um, someone here for the first time, or indeed one of our loyal students who, who have been with us for, uh, for a long time. I'd like to wel welcome everybody here. Um, the University of Oxford is probably one of the world's finest universities, and this Department for Continuing Education is definitely the university's finest department. So you're, you're, you're very welcome here. I'm going to say something about the, the 2008 credit crunch, the recession, the, the current economic climate, what the government's doing about it, and then something called the Commission on Ownership on which I, I served, which is trying to look longer term at what could be done to help the uh, um, British economy, and then finally, uh, what could be done in the immediate term. Quite a, a bit of what I'm going to cover is covered in one way or another by various of our, our courses, so I'll try and mention those I, I go through, but there's a lot that isn't, but could be if there was a demand from people like you to do the courses. Some of you are in the session we had earlier at, uh, at midday by my colleague, Dr. Martin Ruse, a new university lecturer in political economy who we've just hired precisely to put on more courses and economics. So it's something we intend to do, but we do need to know what you want, what subjects you want, whether you want weekly class programs, summer schools, day and weekend programs, online courses, degree programs, whatever. First, I'll introduce myself. I'm slightly ashamed to say I didn't go to Kellogg College when I, when I came here um, in the 1970s. In my, in my defense, firstly, Kellogg College is for graduates only, and I came as an undergraduate. And also, when I came in 1976, Kellogg College hadn't even been thought of, let alone uh, established. And the reason was, in, when I came in the 1970s, in the University of Oxford, you weren't allowed to work during term time if you were a student. And that, that all surpri surprises Americans, obviously, because they're used to the idea that you, you work as a, a college student. It also surprised people who stop and think, but how could you have a business school if you don't have an executive MBA, where the high-flying executives just come for a, a short week? Well, the answer was simple. University of Oxford didn't allow a business school. It didn't regard management of business as a legitimate academic subject in those uh, days. It only established it in the, in the 1990s. Now I realize, given what's happened since 2008, some people might think, well, maybe Oxford was right uh, earlier on. Maybe business schools haven't done uh, much good for the state of the, the world economy. Uh, but in any case, it was only in 1990 that the university agreed for postgraduates only that you could work during term time and study for a postgraduate degree, a doctorate or a master's program part-time, and that's why Kellogg College was set up. So I did politics, philosophy and economics, a DPhil, a college lecture in economics, before going and doing various um, economic policy jobs, non-academic jobs. Ended up in Brussels working as an expert, that was the job description, not my uh, 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 evaluation, for the European Commission. As you'll probably guess from later slides, I wasn't responsible for designing the euro. Uh, I, I then, then when, I, when I did become an academic, I actually went to 
Cambridge. I used to have to keep that quiet round here. Yeah, it used to get heckled like that. But, uh, but you can now, now announce in flight company, given that our current vice chancellor, Professor Andrew Hamilton, was at Cambridge. That's where he did his uh, PhD before going to Yale and back to, to Oxford. Um, and then Birkbeck College, uh, head of the School of Management, which is sort of the equivalent of this department, was, was formed by George Birkbeck to spread the blessings of uh, knowledge to the working people of London for, for part-time people who are working and studying part-time. Birmingham, where I, I was dean of the business school, so despite what I just said about business schools, um, and then came back here almost five years ago to be professor of innovation and knowledge exchange at Oxford, director of this department and, and president of Kellogg. And uh, at Kellogg, I, I direct a center called the, the Oxford Center for Mutual <coughs> and Employee-Owned Businesses. Business is looking at companies like John Lewis owned by their, their employees or um, the co-op bank and the cooperative shops owned by their, their customers. Because I mentioned those alternative corporate forms, companies, organizations owned not by external shareholders, but by customers and, and employees. And I say that because I'm going to comment on that later. I, I actually think one of the peculiarities of the the British economy is the relatively weak mutual employee-owned sector. Most other uh, countries, including across Europe, um, the United States, have a stronger mutual employee-owned sector, and I think that's better for the resilience of the economy. So I thought I should declare that up front. Uh, we produce various publications, including this one on the health service, and part of the reason I'm putting up these up, these are all downloadable free of charge from the Kellogg College um, website. As, uh, PDFs. If you have any difficulty, let me know. My, you know where I live, <laughs> and I'll send you hard copies. But they're all available on the web to read and downloadable. So um, the credit crunch in 2008. I would argue the the broad causes were that whole 30 years um, from the early 80s of, of privatisation, deregulation, demutualisation in Britain, where customer-owned mutual building societies were demutualised and turned into private shareholder-owned banks to speculate uh, along with uh, the rest of them, promoting the, the greed is good uh, corporate culture, well depicted in that film, uh, Wall Street, of, of shareholder value, the idea that the purpose of a company should be to maximize the uh, price of shares and dividends paid to the shareholders rather than what you produce, the purpose of the company, serving the customers, uh, and so on. That whole 30, year, 30 years of of privatization, deregulation. There's lots of seats, by the way. Do, do come to the front. Uh, that whole 30 years was well described by the, the economist, sadly died a, a few years ago, but who taught me in the 1970s here in Oxford, Andrew Glynn, who just before he, he died, um, and just before the 2008 credit crunch, when everything seemed to be going wonderfully for, for the global economy, he wrote a book called Capitalism Unleashed by which he meant that during the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the global capitalist system was very heavily regulated internationally. You couldn't just move money around uh, internationally. And in most domestic countries, a lot of public ownership, public regulation. And it was really only from the 1980s onwards that all those regulations were scrapped. Interestingly, a lot of those regulations were introduced because in the 1930s, with the global economic slump and Keynes writing that that wasn't a, a surprise to him. Markets didn't operate automatically to return economies to full employment. You had to intervene, um, regulate to stop excessive speculation and so on. Most countries followed his advice, put in the place that, those sort of regulations. And it was only after um, 30 years of, of relative 
economic uh, prosperity for the world economy during the 1950s, 60s, 70s, that um, those who, who uh, saw that they could profit from having a more free market environment managed to successfully lobby to get those regulations repealed because memories had, had sort of faded about why they were introduced in the first place and the dangers of having unleashing capitalism, as Andrew Glynn very presciently uh, called his book, forecasting really what happened um, since. I think that, that crunch was nicely epitomized by Northern Rock, which had been a very successful customer-owned mutual building society, um, which had then been demutualized, turned into a, a private bank, had speculated along with the other banks, and gone, gone bankrupt. Uh, that one was particularly well known because for those of you who did economics in, in school, one of the first things you're, you're taught is, obviously it's very difficult for economies to develop originally at the time of the Industrial Revolution because the idea that there would be this um, company which would take in your money and whenever you came to get it back, they would give it back to you. Obviously raised some suspicions you know, at first and people were nervous and, and when banks first started being founded, as soon as there was a bad rumor, of course, everyone would want their money out and there'd be a bank run and the banks would collapse. So the, all governments had to introduce regulation to assure customers that banks would be forced to keep a, a reasonable amount of money back so that they, couldn't, uh, uh, that they would be able to give you your money back if and when you wanted it. So we were all taught that bank runs had been abolished, that problem had been solved, which indeed they had until Northern Rock came along, uh, speculated, uh, gambled, uh, it all went wrong. And the pictures were shown all around the world of, of the people up in Newcastle <laughs> queuing all night uh, to get their money out. And sure enough, when they opened the next morning, they didn't have enough money to, to uh, pay them back. The company collapsed, and we, the taxpayers, <laughs> put uh, um, hundreds of millions of pounds in to, to bail them out. And that 2008 credit crunch, actually the recession and the global recession in 2009 was actually the first um, global recession since the 1930s. It was the first time since the 1930s that the level of national income, production, wealth for the entire globe actually fell during that year. That had never happened since the 1930s. So in 2009, despite the fact that China, India, other countries, Brazil continued to grow strongly, um, global national income fell. And the, the recession that, that kicked off, ordinarily, obviously countries recover from, from recession, even Britain, um, other countries re re recovered from the recession in, in the 1930s, partly with Keynes's uh, uh, helpful advice. We recovered from the very steep recession in 1979-80, usually within uh, two or three years. I mean, th this was obviously four um, years ago, the 2008 um, credit crunch, and the, the national income in, in Britain, national output, GMP, however you measure it, is still lower today than it was you know, four or five years ago before uh, the recession, which is pretty well unprecedented. Now, all this is uh, um, discussed in detail um, in a number of uh, podcasts, which are downloadable um, free of charge, um, done by me and a colleague, Dr. Linda Yu, who's at Teddy Hall uh, here, an economist. And um, as I say, th these are, are, are downloadable free of charge from that website, iTunes. OxACUK. iTunes is a, is a global um, uh, operation where all the leading universities uh, participate, putting up lectures which are, are downloadable. And Oxford's been particularly good at, at uh, encouraging academics to, to put their material on there. And 
has regularly been number one in the global um, charts. And I'm pleased to say that the reason Oxford's uh, done better than Harvard or almost any uh, other universities is thanks to this department. Uh, the best, the, the most popular uh, lectures have been from academics in this department. Our philosopher, particularly, um, has been number one uh, repeatedly in those global charts. Um, um, which is slightly annoying to me because the highest, <laughs> highest any of these got to is number two globally. Although when one of these was number two globally, it was keeping Barack Obama's original inaugural lecture speech into a third place. So that was, a, I thought that was quite impressive. Um, we also do online courses, 10-week online courses, which people do have to pay for because they're tutored. They're kept, although they're online, they're kept to small numbers, a maximum of 30 or so people um, so the tutor gets to know each student during the, the 10 weeks and the students get to, to know each other. Um, but these materials are, are free of charge. The two, two of the courses we do already in economics is one on by, written by Linda Yu on new economic powers, um, China, India, the, the role that those economies are playing, and one on globalization um, written by myself so that I could use my textbook uh, as, the, as the course book. Um, a second edition came out uh, last year, but um, I, gave, I gave a lecture the other day to a high-level um, visiting Chinese delegation, and they said at the end, yeah, well, that's very interesting, and we know the economy's in trouble and so on, but were you saying it beforehand? Um, so I've got a quote here from a, a book of mine in 1999, where I did indeed say that, that um, the fact that the economy is becoming increasingly internationalized does not dictate the form that this process is taking. The free market laissez-faire agenda is one being pursued by those who benefit from such deregulated winner-take-all environment. It's not the only choice. And for the majority of the world's population, it's an inappropriate one. So I mean, I have been arguing all along, as have a, a, a large number of other economists, including my colleague Martin Ruse, some of you have heard uh, earlier today, um, that it's not a question of, of being pro-anti-globalization. It's the form that this globalization has taken, which has been skewed to make the, the rich and powerful and wealthy even, even richer uh, and wealthier both in this country and, and globally, within countries and uh, across countries. On to the Euro crisis then, and the, uh, the omni-shambles. First, uh, uh, a, li a little uh, competition. Who knows why omni-shambles is particularly in the news today? What do you mean, a dictionary? <laughs> yeah, so can someone do better? <laughs> Oxford, yeah, exactly. No, but yeah, but... Uh, that's right, yeah, yeah. But, um, no, it's, I think it's every year there's this new story about which, which words Oxford University Press has decided to include in, in the Oxford English Dictionary, and Omnishambles is uh, um, the, uh, the, the most favored one of the, of the batch they've agreed to uh, in, um, introduce this year. And for those who don't know, I mean, I said Oxford is one of the best universities. Oxford University Press is by far the most successful university press um, in the world. And my chancellor likes to put out uh, to, to um, explain that it's actually more successful uh, by any measure than all the American university presses and Cambridge University Press put together. So, which is very good news for us because the, the surpluses, I can't say profits because it's part of the university which is a registered charity so we can't make a profit but the surpluses all go to fund scholarships for, for students. So this omni-shambles which the Oxford University um, um, sorry, Oxford English Dictionary is defining as a situation that has been comprehensively mismanaged, characterized by a string of blunders and miscalculations. 
I'd say, the fairly good uh, um, description of the design and introduction of the euro uh, as a currency. Um, so first, I'd say that it was caused by the flaws in that single currency project from the start. Um, again, something I was arguing at the time in 1998 in a book called The Single European Currency in National Perspective, which even at the time I had a, did put in the subtitle saying a community in crisis. So I think that, that has been true from the start. Secondly, of course, the bankers did gamble, um, and they lost, which is fair enough. I mean, if you gamble, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. The difference was when, when they lost, when they, when they gambled and they won, they kept their winnings. When they gambled and lost, um, they didn't pay for it. They were paid for by um, us, by the taxpayers, governments, um, taking huge amounts of hundreds of billions of taxpayers' money to bail out uh, the banks. And so what started off as a banking crisis then became a government debt crisis, a sovereign um, debt crisis, including um, across Europe. Um, and on top of that, as well as the, the particular problem of the banks, all the financial institutions, obviously during this whole era of capitalism unleashed, were spending their whole time trying to think up fancier um, deri um, derivatives, other financial products to sell to anyone who would buy them, companies, but also um, governments. Um, and Goldman Sachs actually used those financial markets to put on a, a big bet that Greece would fold, um, which they got into trouble when it was discovered they had done that because they had inside information. They knew Greece was in, in trouble. You're not supposed to use um, inside information. They basically knew that the uh, Greek government books had been cooked. Does anyone know why, how Goldman Sachs came by that insider information? Well, it was Goldman Sachs who had cooked the books themselves. <laughs> and, uh, so that, which is why they knew the conservative government, conservative governments in Greece had paid Goldman Sachs to do that for them. So Goldman Sachs did that, took the, yep, took the nice little owner, took the money, and then went away and bet that Greece would, uh, would uh, fold. Well, Goldman Sachs was paid already. Oh, I see, in, in terms of... Uh, um, the, uh, the bets they, they put on, I think it was just on the, the um, uh, sell it, selling on the, the, you know, the government debt, you know, uh, which is all bought and sold in futures markets. So, and they knew that it would, you know, the price would fall because they'd, uh, they'd cooked the books. <laughs> so the government's response, I mean, obviously the, the um, high-profile um, austerity cuts are the, the um, big news and, and um, what damage they're doing to, to universities uh, and so on. Um, and that's quite a well-known debate, which I'm happy to discuss uh, um, in questions um, and discussion. Um, the problem about um, taking demand out of the economy and, and um, the, the danger that will, will lock economies into recession. Um, but I wanted to talk about briefly, uh, rather than that, was the um, government's argument that, that, or acceptance, that it does need to, to rebalance the economy, that, that the British economy had put all its eggs into the um, city of London, the financial um, sector, financial services sector. It needs to, to have a more regionally diverse economy, more manufacturing, uh, and so on. And in their coalition agreement the, the, for, for the government's uh, agenda, uh, they do include supporting mutuals in order to do that to promote more corporate diversity so that the financial services sector wouldn't be so dominated by just big shareholder-owned companies, which again is a peculiarity of the British economy. There's no other economy does that to such, a, such an extent. 
and this is what, what it says in the coalition agreement, we agree to bring forward detailed proposals to foster diversity, promote mutuals, and create a more competitive banking industry. Now, I would argue there's a, a range, I think they're right to um, aim to do this, there's a, a range of benefits. Firstly, there are advantages to the mutual model itself, the fact that it's owned by its customers, and, and therefore there's an incentive for them to prioritize the interests of the, the customers and take long-term decisions in the long-term um, interest of the company, which will pay back over the long term. They, they aren't subject to the same intense short-term pressure, which, to be fair to them, you know, managing directors and shareholder-owned companies are subjected to sometimes very intense short-term um, pressure. Secondly, in addition to the benefits of that mutual model itself, they do, and there's, there's um, very firm evidence on this, they, they do provide uh, competition to the shareholder-owned banks being a different um, model, uh, and the shareholder banks then are uh, obliged and do respond to, to give um, better service to customers in order to, to meet the, uh, what, what the mutuals are providing. And then thirdly, there's this systemic um, point, which is that these organizations have a very different business model. They, they take decisions different time lengths. They react to events quite di differently. So for the resilience of the sector as a whole, it's much better to have these different sorts of organizations rather than just one type of organization like a, a row of dominoes, which will all react in the same way and precipitate a, um, a sort of rush to the cliff, uh, which actually Keynes described um, discussing the, the way that uh, um, stock markets and, and financial markets often worked with bubbles self-inflating. Uh, and this is, again, discussed in, in detail in this publication, actually with a forward by Danny Alexander, the financial secretary to the, the Treasury, again, all downloadable from the Kellogg website, which um, very br briefly argues that to promote diversity, um, the government should be using um, the state-owned banks. We, we now own these, these uh, or largely own a lot of these big banks. The, the problem is they're just being left to themselves to carry on as if they were just still um, private banks. And if they're not going to be used proactively to foster long-term investment and so on, they should be broken up and the relevant ones put back into the mutual sector, put in the mutual sector or those which have come from the mutual sector back. Um, What's needed is a culture change, though, because one, one problem, partly because the British economy is so peculiar in having such dominance from large shareholder-owned companies and large shareholder-owned banks, it means, understandably, everybody just sort of automatically assumes that's what a company is, that's what the sector is, that's what all regulation and laws should be designed for, politicians, civil servants, regulators. And so what's needed is, that, is a culture change so that regulators, civil servants, and so on um, think differently and, and don't think automatically, um, big shareholder-owned PLC um, banks. And then finally, trying to learn the lessons from the, the crunch. This Jack Welsh, the, the American, was, was the one who actually firstly um, uh, initiated this idea about shareholder value, the idea that the purpose of a company shouldn't be you know, to deliver goods or services, it should be to maximize the return to the private um, shareholders, and it was actually him after the 2008 credit crunch who said that he thought that shareholder value is the dumbest idea in the world, <laughs> despite the fact he'd come up with it. But it's good, you should uh, give credit where credit's due, and people, when people learn, that's what lifelong learning's all about, so glad to see Jack Welch as well. Yeah. Now, now I join the fold. And we did an additional publication looking particularly at Northern Rock, which was one of these companies, like I say, that had actually come from the mutual sector. So the government had a very piece of low-hanging fruit, as they would say, a very easy um, way of, of taking at least a step towards their 
agreed goal of promoting mutuals to have a more diversified financial sector, because they had this, this um, successful mutual organization, which had become a bank, speculated, gone bankrupt, and now owned by the government, and the government had to decide what to do with it. So the obvious thing was to um, return it to the mutual sector, which is what we argued here. Um, surprise, surprise, they uh, sold it to Richard Branson for a cut-down uh, price instead, which is a shame. Um, and well, I think that sort of attitude, uh, epitomizing this, this cartoon, that I think we're in good enough shape to start making the same mistakes again. <laughs> and I, and I, I think when they did that, they really did believe their own propaganda that things were, would just automatically recover, things were go better, and actually they didn't need to stick to this uh, coalition agreement uh, to, to have a more diversified financial sector. Things would just pick up automatically, which I don't think is the case. But there was this ownership commission established, which um, the center that I'm director of in, in, for mutual employee and business did the research for, called the, the ownership commission. It was chaired by Will Hutton, who actually at the time was head of the Work Foundation, although coincidentally has now come to Oxford uh, to be head of Hartford uh, College. And it uh, published this report early this year, arguing in favor of greater plurality in corporate ownership, different forms of uh, corporate ownership for precisely the reasons I was just um, arguing. Better stewardship of companies, those companies which are PLCs, that they shouldn't just be managed and organized for the personal financial benefit of shareholders. They should take account of the long-term health of the company, uh, the goods and services they produce, their customers, their suppliers, etc. And all sorts of organizations should have greater engagement of um, employees <coughs> and those that have, have shareholders, greater engagement of their, those shareholders rather than just um, being owned by, by speculators who may own the share deliberately, aiming to own it just for a, a few weeks and then sell it on as soon as the, the price is right. Um, and again, this, that's a report from the Ownership Commission, but again, that is downloadable free of charge from the, the Kellogg uh, website. That, that's the um, list of, of people. Um, I'll just point out one. I mean, it's a very um, good and interesting mix of people, most of them in the private sector, so, so it's significant that they, they did come up with those um, recommendations to have a more diverse corporate sector. Um, and to Roger... Carr was, was interesting because he's well, chairman of Centrica, a big private company, but also president of the Confederation of, of British um, Industry, the employer's uh, organization. And I think the reason he agreed um, to serve on the, on the commission and was in favor of the, the recommendations is he was also chairman of uh, Cadbury's when they were subjected to a hostile takeover bid from Crafts. Um, now, he said, you know, um, in confidence in the meeting, so don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, he, he said that the, the, the board, him and the board thought actually, you know, the, the takeover wasn't in the best interest of the company. When the company was a, a good company, successful company, had a good future uh, ahead of it. I mean, ob obviously, like all of us, no doubt they could do things um, better uh, and they weren't, they weren't uh, um, small-minded or anything. They were happy to, to think of any... any uh, good suggestions for improving the performance of, of the company uh, globally. But they thought it was in the interest of the company to stay independent in, in the interest of the, their customers, their employees, their various stakeholders. Um, and so they were opposed to the bid. And he was, ad he was advised um, by the legal advice he took um, that even though that was his view, legally, he had no choice but to 
um, accept the bid, to put it to the shareholders and recommend it to the shareholders if they thought um, the price, if he thought the, the price was right, you know, the price for the shares. They weren't allowed to reject the bid just on the grounds that it was interest in the interest of the company uh, to remain uh, independent, um, which he found quite shocking, <laughs> I think. But that is um, still, you know, UK law. I think there's no other country in the world, actually, which makes it so, yeah, so easy um, for one of their companies just to be taken over um, for, from outside where there's no evidence that it would actually be in the interest of, of the company. Um, it's just that it will make money for the company that wants to take them over. Obviously, this is part of a, a longer debate which has gone on for a while about how to tackle um, short-termism because it, in this case, it was a takeover from from crafts, and so sometimes it's depicted as a sort of nationalistic argument if you're opposed to it. But actually, the, the danger for a, a manager of any um, company in this country is it can be taken over by any other company. Um, it doesn't matter what, what the nationality. It might be another uh, British company, um, hedge fund or, or whatever, thinks that, well, they could um, asset strip it and then sell it off for more money in a, in a few months' time. Um, so there has been a long-standing recognition that this puts pressure on managers and directors which may make them uh, operate in ways which aren't necessarily in the best long-term interest of the company. You know, they, they may think, yes, they should commit most of the profits um, to long-term investments in new product development, um, staff training, but if they do that and don't give out any dividend, the share price will fall, and that makes it easier for a um, hostile bidder to come up and buy up the company, get rid of that manager, move in themselves, and so on. So it is a, a serious problem which has been discussed uh, for a long time and very little as yet done about it. I think it's, it's nicely depicted in, in this cartoon. It's actually American, but the same problem of short-termism um, affects both the <coughs> British and American economies where Dog Burtz, the consultant brought in by this company in trouble with their profits um, plunging, says the problem won't be easy to so solve because the relative brain size of uh, their competitors Beavers and, and you, this board of directors. So the response of the board of directors is, so what should we do? Cut the training budget again? Which is all too often what happens in the British and American companies. And what's needed is a, a more long-term uh, approach. I mean, investing in, in people, obviously, in, in um, training skills, creating what's sometimes referred to as high-commitment work systems. Because if, if companies do invest, invest in their, their people, they can get their employees to be more committed to the organization, obviously, than if the employees think the organization is just out for short-term financial benefit of, benefit of the shareholders and, and directors. Um, and arrangements which, which encourage long-term uh, investment. As I say, the, the danger of short-term um, takeover is a, a problem here. Long-term investment, not only in the workforce, but in the innovative capacity of the, the company um, and productive facilities. And also, I'd, I'd say, and this is a um, point I'll mention briefly, more collaboration, which is uh, one area where other countries have, have been more successful, I think, than in the UK. Um, when I was dean of the uh, business school at the University of Birmingham, I got um, 3.6 million pounds from a, um, a fund called the Government Higher Education Innovation Fund um, to establish something called the Innovation Exchange, which was very useful. It had been operating successfully in, in Australia, and actually the the chair of the Innovation Exchange in Australia happened to be on, on my advisory board for the business school and, and suggested it. Um, and what it did is, is hire um, 
postdoc um, scientists who would work um, in a university lab one day a week, work in a, a company, one of its member companies, a, a company that joined the Innovation Exchange for one day a week, another company, another one day a week, always looking for potential uh, profitable collaboration between companies where one company might have a, a problem, a bottleneck, and another might have a, a solution. Uh, and that's proved very successful, creating collaboration which would have just never occurred between those companies otherwise, because Britain, most countries have got some sort of um, institutional structures like this to encourage these sort of collaborations, and the UK has always been very, very weak at that. Um, and it helps to build and maintain um, trust between those organizations, well, which I'd argue <coughs> is, a, is a very important part of, of the economy, which um, you don't always find in economics textbooks in reference to the importance of trust. But in, in reality, in, in real economies, that does play an important role. So um, to conclude, well, um, what, what, whatever's next. Um, I mean, I think the, one important point to make is that the you know, the future is sort of not inevitable or automatic, and it certainly won't follow a sort of textbook economic model. The, the economy doesn't just write itself. It does depend what, what, what we as consumers and shareholders and managers um, do, but also on what uh, government and regulators uh, do. And there, there is there's no reason why we shouldn't be stuck in, in recession for um, another year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, as has happened to a certain extent in Japan. This, lost decade, which is actually now sort of lost two decades, where, where there, which was sparked by a, a similar sort of uh, speculative frenzy and bubble bursting, and, and the company's still sort of indebted sort of below the, the water and finding it difficult to, to um, re-enter uh, uh, um, investment and, and growth. So that, there is, that is a real danger. We could go into triple dip, uh, dip uh, recession. Um, so and it does need uh, alternative policies. I, mean, I argued the importance of greater corporate diversity, which, as I say, the, the government's committed to, but unfortunately not doing much about uh, as yet. Um, Long-termism, encouraging companies to take decisions uh, for the long term rather than just the short-term uh, increase in share price that will get the, the managers and, and uh, directors their, their share bonuses investing in training, research and development, innovation, and generally investing in people, creating those, those um, high commitment work systems. And it, one way that's actually beneficial for, for companies is, is just because the, the cost, obviously, of replacing people if they, they do move on is, is quite high. <coughs> but, but also, not always realizes, is if a company's investing in a, a, a really major um, new, new piece of um, equipment or, or factory for which they, they expect to pay back in over 10 or 20 years, often the, the degree of payback they get from that new, new investment over 10 years is not just unknown, it's sort of unknowable. And it depends actually on um, how clever and incentivized and committed the employees are at do, um, introducing the, the new equipment, seeing how it can best be used, learning on, on the job and so on. So um, the productivity of employees uh, isn't uh, a known factor, as uh, economists always sort of have in, in uh, equations. It does depend very much on well, how they're treated and managed in the workplace. And finally, that uh, point about corporate culture encouraging um, cooperation and, and trust, both internally within organizations um, and between. So that's uh, 
my argument. I think I've left um, almost 10 minutes for questions, general discussion, if anyone has any. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, I think that's right, and and um, I think it's no, you know, no big surprise if I say that I, I think that well, obviously that coalition agreement was, you know, the result of negotiation between two political parties, and it was the Lib Dems, obviously, who were keen on the idea of, of mutuals, and and always have been as a as a party, and um, so that. That's what they sort of demanded as part of the, the coalition agreement. But yes, I think the Conservative Party is not particularly committed to it. So I think that. Yeah, I mean, I th well, the ownership commission I was on was sort of supported by government, but not an official um, committee. Um, but no, yeah, I would say that uh, that basically the Conservative Party isn't particularly committed to, to mutuals or employee-owned organisations. I mean, um, obviously George Osborne did make his big announcement at the Conservative Party conference in favour of employee ownership, but uh, that was if you take um, shares in your company, you have to give up your employment rights. Uh, including, bizarrely, sort of flexibility, the right for flexibility, was the, the, normally the whole uh, argument in favor of, of uh, uh, employee ownership. It'll make people more, more committed and more flexible and able, willing to go and do different jobs in the company and, and so on. So the idea that you should give up your employment rights in order to um, uh, be an employee-owned organization was, was just bizarre. Um, so yes, I think it, it is, I mean, I think the Conservative Party isn't particularly committed to um, this uh, diversity in the economy. I think they were forced to put that in um, by the Lib Dems and then actually haven't really done much about it because of the relative balance of, of power. Being emblematic of how you make Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this short, short term, I, 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 I absolutely agree with him. I think everything must be done to try and make this look much longer ahead if we possibly can. Is there any room for uh, taxation to, particularly on capital gains tax, <coughs> change the capital gains so that you tax less for mm -hmm. people who have held assets for a longer period? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. I think there are there are you know specific things like that which which can be done. Um, that abolishing this quarterly reporting because there, there's such a frenzy when a company comes out. There's no reason why you should publish the results every quarter. And that just adds the sort of feeding frenzy. Um, but also, so I think all those small things are, are important. But it, it's also important to put in the big big picture as well to to um, get over the sort of the cultural 
problem about this, this uh, obsession that just, just shareholder value is the purpose of a, an organization. It's got to be remembered, which is particularly relevant actually, um, given these companies have been bailed out. There is this idea of, sort of limited liability which, uh, of companies, which means, okay, if, if I set up a company and it goes bankrupt and I owe your money, um, okay, you can take what, what money's left there, but you can't, you can't force me to sell my house and, and pay you back the debts. Now, you might argue whether that's right, right or wrong, but when that idea was first um, uh, derived, as you can imagine, I think it would have been a strange idea. I mean, why shouldn't I pay my, my debts? Um, and the idea was that there was, there was some reciprocity you know, I was given, being given quite a privilege. I wouldn't have to, you know, sell my house and pay, pay, pay you all back. But in return, th there should be some purpose to this company. You know, I should be going to do something. I should build a railroad or pr produce some, some <coughs> furniture or something. It shouldn't be just so I can personally enrich myself privately. I mean, where's the bargain in that? And that's been sort of lost. And that was the whole purpose of, of companies having sort of, um, purposes and, and uh, articles of association and so on. So I think, yeah, no, there are, are specific things which could be done, and it's, it's a scandal, really, they've not been, because the problem's been identified for decades about short-termism. So those short-term things should be done, but within the larger context that, that companies should have a, a purpose and a, a, a loyalty to, to society. Absolutely, absolutely. This is to uh, attacks on financial speculative uh, um, um, flows. Um, de definitely, and sometimes advocated just as a, a f another form of taxation, so you could raise billions, which would help, could be used for economic development, you know, globally, and, and so obviously it would have a, a benefit if you did raise more money. Um, but interestingly, it was uh, it was um, proposed by James Tobin, an economist, Nobel Prize in economics, um, and. Sometimes economists think, oh, you've got to be careful putting in taxes or regulations because you'll, you'll sort of stop the market mechanism working. Whereas his reason for proposing it was precisely that, because he, he recognized that actually um, economic free markets can be devastatingly uh, damaging uh, and, and just um, allowing uh, markets to, to um, shift um, money around the globe, have, have speculative um, buying and selling of assets isn't necessarily helpful to the creation of real, real wealth. So his, his reason for introducing the tax actually wasn't all the benefits you could um, use the tax revenue for, although that, that's good. It was actually deliberately, he said, to put sand in the wheels of the, the market to slow things down and, and you know, focus people on doing real things rather than just speculation. No, so I think, actually, I hope this time will finally have come after many de decades of being ignored. I think it would be good. So we should end in a, a second, but why don't I take these final two and then we can carry on over a glass of wine. Uh, yes, if you are going along to a you know currently profitable you know shareholder and company, you're right. So it's not impossible, but it would be you know a big challenge. You you need to basically you know borrow a lot of money to buy out those shareholders and then um, you know accept that the the surpluses from that mutual would have to go to to pay down the debt. But you're right, it, it is difficult if you know the company's currently 
uh, got a lot of shareholders, you know, making a lot of money. Which, well, and I mean, that's why it's so so annoying and tragic that the, the opportunity with Northern Rock was passed up because that, that's where you know the government had to do something with it, and actually the the and what we made clear to the government, although they denied de denied that we had done, was that the government could have got more money if that if that was their priority. I mean, it shouldn't be their priority. Their priority should have been to rebalance the economy as they said it was. But if that if that was their priority, they could have got more money by remutualizing it than from Richard Branson because the point but it would have taken time. They would have had to take the only downside is they would have had to take a long term view, which as we've just been saying would actually be a good thing, not a bad thing. because um, the, the mutual would have then paid back the, the government, you know, its it surplus or eighty percent of its surplus a year, um, either until some figure had been hit, four hundred million, five hundred million, or over a, a certain number of years. But they could have, you know, had a figure seven hundred million and they would have had, they would have carried on paying back until until that figure had been hit. It's more difficult on something to bring back to the Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So take one last one. <laughs> yeah, quite a few questions there on that last one. Yeah, I'm sure that, that that's um, part of it. Yeah, I mean the manufacturing um, question is a very very good one and, and <coughs> quite complex because um, you're absolutely right. And and obviously, um, it, you know, you might think, well, we can't go back to you know building ships or whatever. Um, but yeah, well, well, a they do. And no, but I actually agree with you because the point is there's lots of new manufacturing manufacturing um, products. You know, just you know. The iPhone and the uh, BlackBerry, and I mean, we, we, talk, we sometimes think as if, or it's sometimes said that manufacturing is something of the past. Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. No, I mean, Britain should, you know, do could, um, and should do better. And you know, the government has said that that was part of rebalancing the, uh, the economy. To, and, and no, no, you're right. Um, but they they could and should. And I'd say all the things I've, I've um, said, you know, would help. Um, Manufacturing. I mean, they, the manufacturing companies do need uh, long-term finance. You know, pledge over ten years, which again is, has always been a, a problem with the British fin financial um, system. Even where they provide money to a manufacturing company, it's often uh, as a as an overdraft <coughs> overdraft facility. Which No, exactly, and that's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we continue this over a glass of wine? Thank you all very much. Yeah.